Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And um, first thing I want to acknowledge is it's been a long while, a lot longer than I had planned to, but circumstances uh, have dictated um, that I take a break for a moment. Uh, nothing really bad, just time constraints. And so this is my first chance to really record anything in a long time, and a lot of things have happened um, since since my last recording. I do want to thank the people who um, have been going to the Facebook page and uh, even participating in the Facebook group attached to the page. And um, and those people who have been kind of looking forward to uh, my next podcast. And uh, I would encourage people to continue to do that. Uh, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to whatever um, medium that you're listening to this on, whether this is Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts. Um, or even on the social media page, just because uh, um, we also have a Twitter account as well. And so, just want again, like I said, to thank everybody and to be patient as we're going to try to navigate and get as many of these out, um, and hopefully. With the podcast, we can start some real discussions about things, pro or con, because, you know, not everybody is going to agree with everything they hear, whether it's me or anybody else. Which, to be honest, is kind of the reason why I felt compelled to make some time to, to do a podcast today. And I'm going to go back a little bit. Because it seemed as though that something happened and there was a little conversation about it. It made the news and then it just kind of faded away and maybe for the best it should, but I, I think it needs to be highlighted uh, for the simple fact that people need to know the mindset. Now I'm going to jump a little bit because, like I said, a lot of stuff, thing, a lot of things happened, a lot of stuff happened. Uh, and to kind of put into perspective what I'm going to start talking about, something recently happened here in Stone Mountain, Georgia, um, that really illustrates where we are. So I don't know who was allowed or permitted to participate first or demonstrate first, but what you ended up seeing, the image that went across the media was a group of armed men dressed primarily in military outfits, camouflage, all that. One guy even had Confederate flag painted on his head standing in formation 
with weapons as if they were defending Stone Mountain. And then you saw a group of men, primarily men, uh, in black t-shirts, most of them saying Black Lives Matter. One even had a Black Lives Matter flag. Um, and there were some white people in the Black Lives Matter group too, but primarily it was black men standing on the opposite end. And you got the guy standing in front of the group waving the flag like he actually found a platform. And so he was above everybody waving the flag as everybody was facing each other. And when I was asked, well, what do you think of that image? I said, this is the, this is the America that our president wants. This is the divided America that he seeks. And in order to secure a stronghold politically, dictatorially, um, however he fashions himself in his mind, because we make a big assumption that our current president is a willing participant in democracy. Willing means that he is willing to abide by the rules of a democracy, that you have to run for the presidency, that you have to get the nomination of your respective party, that you, uh, even the, the parties that are not considered major, you still have a process, right? Whether you want to be the Green Party nominee, Communist Party nominee, whatever, there is a process to go through. It's not like you just say, I'm the nominee for this. And nobody had any say-so in that, right? Every political party has a nominating process. And so a primary process, even, uh, in, in some circumstances, especially with the major parties. And so you have to go through this process um, to be elected, whether it's the president or whether it's to be on the city council. There's a process, and you buy into that process by saying that you're willing to participate. You sign an affidavit and pay a fee and do all the stuff that you need to do, right? And especially, President, because you have 50 states, uh, 50 different qualification rules that you have to comply with in order to become a candidate on every ballot, every state ballot. So we make the assumption that because he has gone through the process before and he was successful in getting elected, that he is a willing participant in the democratic process. And I th that's a failed assumption. Based on his actions from the moment that he even was sworn in, the very language he used in the inauguration address, it is quite obvious that he is not a willing participant in the democratic process. He is in his own mind trying to create as close to a dictatorial process. And if if you don't understand, a dictatorship is a is a 
political. As a former government, where I, it's it's political, but it's one sided, right? It could be one particular party running the whole thing, like it is in China, or or a individual that we have seen throughout history, right? Even Hitler was a party, right? It was the National Socialist Party, and he was the high chancellor. He was the man over the party and over, he was given a position to be over the country. But his party was the ruling party and there really wasn't any other party. And the same thing with China and uh, same thing it was with the Soviet Union before it was dissolved, right? Um, so that's how that goes. Saddam Hussein was a military dictator. Uh, you could say the same about Gaddafi and others who used military power, Mbutu, all these others who used their military. They were ranking members in the military and they used the military to take over the government and, and, and run the government the way that they wanted it to run with no political input whatsoever. So when you get rid of what we call in the political science term, political pluralism, right, where you have multiple parties like the United States, like Canada, like England, you know what I'm saying? When you get rid of those, right, you get rid of that and you basically take away the will of the people and you basically destroy the media or control the media, then you have the makings or you are in the midst of having a dictatorship. And so... You know, and one of the one of the other components when you take away the will of the people, you take away the freedom of thought. Right? So let's start with now that we've got the basic premise of what I want to talk about today, let's let's deal with the freedom of thought. Right? So there was an event that took place a while back in the in between my last podcast and now where it was a U.S. senator had introduced a bill, I believe. And his name is Tom Cotton. He's from the state of Arkansas. And uh, he was he was uh, for lack of a better word an arch conservative an ultra conservative, if you will. Um, he was one of those guys that you kept seeing get elected that eventually led to somebody like Donald Trump getting elected, right? And so uh, Cotton has never been a person of moderation. Maybe as a child, maybe as a teenager, but not as a political adult, right? And so he introduced a bill that would prohibit primary and secondary educational schools, um, public school districts, to teach a curriculum or to incorporate in the curriculum the New York Times' 1619 project. 
And I always mess up the, the young lady's name who did it, um, but she is a direct descendant of Ida B. Wells. Um, she won a Pulitzer Prize for her work. But she was the main architect putting together the collaboration of essays and stories and, and historical accounts that explained the 400 years from 1619 to 2019 of the African-American existence, primarily focusing on the period from 1619 to 1865 when America was in legalized slavery, right? And uh, for those of us who have studied slavery, whether it was in the schools or, and it did depend on which school you went to, right? And what state you lived in, how you were giving given history of slavery. Most of us know, as a commoner, that slavery was not a great thing. It was pretty bad, actually. It was uh, many people, white, black, Asian, Latino, any historian that has ever looked at that period from 1619 to 1865, refers to slavery as America's original sin, right? So, the normal depiction of slavery has never been a great... I mean, it was so bad that the country literally fought itself, right? You have to remember, America as a country, prior to 1865, had been in a lot of wars. A lot of people don't understand that. America was, you know, fought the British twice. The Revolutionary War, everybody knows, because that's the 4th of July, and... Uh, you know, the U.S. Constitution was formed, you know, George Washington. Most people have a base knowledge that there was a war against England and we won and we became a country. That was a revolutionary war. But Britain came back and that was the War of 1812. And the War of 1812 was a very brutal battle, but it was, it was another successful victory for the United States, and it further established the United States as a legitimate country. Uh, and it, it helped secure some of the expansion that we had done under the Jeffersonian administrations, uh, including the Louisiana Purchase, which is why the Battle of New Orleans is so revered and so uh, important. Right, Andrew Jackson became president off of that. So that battle, those battles happened. Then we had, <clears throat> excuse me, the battle, the Mexican-American War, which a lot of people don't talk about. But again, the result of that war led to the expansion to include what we now call California, which plays a part in this podcast too, down the road. But anyway. Uh, a treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, maybe I don't, I don't. Anyway, so it, we fought that war too. All right, so the United States was in conflict externally, right, 
but we were in conflict around 18, around the time that we had the Mexican-American War, we were having internal conflicts in the United States dealing with slavery. So much so that the Republican Party basically came into existence because of the issue of slavery, but not for the altruistic viewpoints that some conservatives now try to spin on on African-Americans and question their loyalty to the Democratic Party. This was strictly a business decision to create a political party to challenge the original Democratic-Republican Party, now Democratic Party, and to surpass the Whigs, which was the primary opposition at that time, because the Federalists had kind of faded out. Um, and so to be this voice from the business community in the North who did not have a lot of political power because the slaves were counted in reapportionment as three-fifths of a human, which gave Southern states more members in Congress than the Northern states. But the, the North wealth-wise was equal, if not slightly more, than the South. The South's wealth was based off slavery, which was an agricultural-based economy, right? The North was an industrial-based economy. And so they needed bodies to work in all these factories. And thus, they created a political party to challenge the notion of slavery, if nothing else, to say, hey, guys, let us get some of those workers that you're not paying and let us get them and pay them. I'm not going to pay them a whole lot, but we're going to, we need some of that labor too because in the best interest of the United States, we both need to make money. And the Southerners didn't really care about that. Right. So. Eventually, for five years, the United States was at war with itself. So the brutality of slavery, the. um, The. Impact slavery had on those Africans who became Americans. Um, how it did everything possible to strip their culture and their language and all things that identified them as who they were, right? Um, creating a casteist system even amongst themselves, right? Hence the legendary Willie Lynch letter. All those things that are out there, the 1619 Project sought to condense in a thorough way, but to put it all in one spot where people from this point forward could go to and research and start their research and all this other stuff. It kind of like a, for lack of a better term, a equivalent to a presidential library 
dealing with this one particular issue of slavery, right? Because we don't have a slavery museum. Now we have a Holocaust museum to deal with what happened during World War II, right? We have uh, the museum in um, Montgomery, Alabama to highlight lynching, right? That took place, which was one of the two American Holocausts. Because the other American Holocaust, which was also a byproduct of slavery, was the Middle Passage, where the estimates of loss of life are incredible, right? It's hard to document, but it's, it's exponentially more than what the Jewish community dealt with under Hitler in Europe. Right? even more so than the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades and all that stuff. I mean, it, it is estimated that the equivalent of a third of the current U.S. population died during the Middle Passage. It may be overinflated. I don't know. Um, I don't doubt it. But it's, it's really hard to substantiate an actual number. You can do basically what we're the scientific sampling and you know proportion based on how many people were on the ship and all those different logs. It's, it's you know keeping track because they they kept track of the slaves because they were considered property, so they had to inventory that. So you know if people kept accurate books, which most of them, I'd say most of them did, um, they documented how much cargo they lost, right? And so you have a general sense. And when you add all that up, it's a monumental number, right? Um, so anyway, um, and then I say lynching is a byproduct of slavery because this was the response to the end of slavery, the end of the Civil War, the reconstruction period and where black people went from being enslaved to being empowered with no real transition period in between, right? It's just like, bam, you're free, bam. Okay, now you can run for office, now you can vote, now you can do this, now you can do that. Oh, we got positions of power, okay, great. Oh, now wait, wait, what is this insurrection thing? And it was gone, right? I say 10 good years. Most people, you know, historically, you can say 20. It was 10 good years, right, of black people in political power, real political power in the United States of America. We were electing people to the United States Senate, to the House of Representatives. We were speakers of the House. We were governors. We were making policy decisions. We were the majority of the legislative bodies. The biggest contribution, I repeat this over and over again, was that public education became a right under black leadership in the United States. So then lynching was the response to that. That was the terroristic act that took place and was a practice that continued even once they retained power, regained power to white folks. And they continue to use it as an implementation of terror to maintain that power until organizations like the NAACP and others organized and galvanized and finally 
convince the United States Congress to pass a bill. There were several black people that authored bills, including the very first black person from the North, Oscar the Priest, a Republican, which was then followed up by his successor, who was a Democrat, um, Mitchell, I believe his name was, and, and, and they continued to push that anti-lynching legislation. And by the way, the Priest and Mitchell, during their terms in the United States Congress, were the only blacks in Congress. So basically, from 1920-something to 1945, basically a period of about 20 years, there's only one black man in Congress. And that black man represented the first district of the state of Illinois, which was basically the south side of Chicago. So... Having gone through all that, right? Uh, Tom Cotton had a problem with the 1619 Project and the way that it tells the story about slavery and it creates this repository about how to look at slavery and how brutal and, and cruel a uh, an institution it was. And when he was asked, well, why do you have a problem with that? And he basically said it's inaccurate. And he also tried to say that the founding fathers looked at it as a necessary evil. Um, which some historians agree with and some do not. Um, most of them believe that it was not a necessary evil, but it was an evil that they could compromise with, right? Hence, in the U.S. Constitution, where African Americans were three-fifths of a person for the purposes of reapportionment, and that there was actually a timetable to end the slave trade. And that, that's key. Because it didn't say the end of slavery, it was the end of the slave trade. It was the end of exporting or importing, I should say. Well, there may have been some export exporting too, but primarily importing slaves to do the work. And that timetable was supposed to be within 10 years of the ratification, or 20 years of ratification of the uh, Constitution, right? So, um, it was in there. It was documented. And there were, there were some members of the Constitutional Convention that wanted to follow or, or uh, be proactive in ending slavery prior to, you know, their former uh, bosses or about however you wanted to, to being uh, the king you know they were subjects um, for the monarchy that they were under they wanted to surpass them and actually outlaw slavery and of course Britain ended up outlawing slavery before the United States but there were some people that wanted to be proactive like that and of course to get the southern 
states, they had to back off of that. So, Tom Cotton doesn't want that to be taught in classrooms. He wants everything to be as it was. Um, he doesn't think that children need to know that slavery was really, really bad. I mean, really, really bad. Primarily, he doesn't want kids in Arkansas to understand it. Primarily, he doesn't want kids. And say, I want y'all to understand something. Right? Now, Tom Cotton and his kind and his supporters do not want their children to go to public schools. Even though they are in government and government finances the public schools. Whether it's at the local level through you know, school boards or at the federal level where they supply Pell Grants, right? And Pell Grants, you can go to any institution, but, you know, money for uh, historically black colleges, which our president brags that he spent more money on anybody else. Um, but to be fair and honest, Obama spent more money than Bush. Bush spent more money than... Clinton and Clinton spent more money than Bush. Bush spent more money than Reagan, and Reagan was the one who started it, right? So every president is supposed to spend more money. Got a president that spends less money than the previous president, now we've got a problem, right? So at least this president has continued that tradition, right, for whatever his motivation is. Those of us who went to HBCUs, we accept the money, right? Um, but the government plays a role in public education. They created public education. But if you look at the population of public education, especially at the K through 12 level, you know that the proportion the majority proportion of those people that are in those schools are people of color, right? And so even in some of the rural areas, right? I mean, in the most remote, like the Dakotas or something like that, where there's minimal people of color population, there's, you know, but that more is like with the urban areas and the southern part of the country and all that. And when I say south in this instance, I mean all the way over to Texas. <clears throat> you understand that uh, the Dover majority of students, public school system, are people of color. So you don't want children of color, especially African-American children, really understanding what slavery is about. Do you, Mr. Cotton? No, you don't want them to do that for fear of... And then there's always this fear about revolt, right? And that's what drives a lot of this stuff. And we'll get into that a little more on the other side, but it's that fear of revolt 
that is always driven because I don't know how to say it delicately, so I'm just going to say it. White folk have rebelled ever since they have been on the soil, whether it was against the indigenous people, whether it was against the British colony that financed them to come over, the British Empire that financed them to come over, or whether it was against black leadership during Reconstruction. White people, or, or even... You know, white people rebelled amongst themselves when it came down to North versus South, right? There's been a history of that. And so because they want to dictate the educational process, well, those revolts are part of the educational process, right? If you're teaching the history of the nation, and so they're afraid that based on their educational model that they teach, that they use, because Carter G. Woodson was absolutely right, if the oppressor teaches the oppressed, then the oppressed becomes the oppressor, right? And so if you teach them that history, then they'll have a notion, which also goes against some of their philosophy because they've always said that people of color are not quite equal. There's that bell curve thing and all that stuff that's still ingrained in some people's minds that those of us who are not white are not as intelligent. Right. But yet they all and so they don't always look at us as equal as far as being human beings. Yet and still they're afraid that if they teach that kind of history. That we will react similar to them and we would revolt. And eventually kick them out of power and subjugate them and all that kind of stuff. Right. That's that's been a lot of these people's base fear. Now that 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 majority has shrunk down to a minority that's we hope can be infinitesimal, right? I think that's a word or something similar to that. Very small. Uh, but it's still that thought process, that underlying thought process, is still out there. So they don't want to teach anything that's going to incite people. Bottom line. Because education incites, either in a positive way or a negative way, but it incites. It incites thought, right? It, it incites free will. And so when people have free will and they have free thought, then they do things contrary to what is conformity or they go outside of the box. That's the term you always hear in corporate America. Think outside the box, right? So Tom Cotton doesn't want our children to think outside the box. He doesn't want our children to have a perception of what really happened as opposed to what has been romanticized, especially in the part of the country that he represents. That's why you have all these statues, right? Because in other countries, if you, you know, when, when communism ended, people in America were cheering when Lenin statue was taken down, right? <clears throat> or even more recently when Saddam Hussein's statue was taken down, right? But we got a problem with Robert E. Lee's statue being taken down or Stonewall Jackson or Nathan Bedford. Ford. We got a problem with that, right? 
we're the only country that glorifies traitors. Now, in all fairness, from a historical perspective, we know those of us actually been to a library or actually read books, especially historical books, know that these men who rebelled against the United States were allowed to become American citizens again. So when most of them died, they were U.S. citizens again. Probably the only country that was that benevolent, right? But the reality is, is that they rebelled against their country. Because when people like Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey and Gabriel Prosser rebelled against slavery, they weren't granted that graciousness, right? They were killed on the spot. So, I say all that to say this, and then we're going to go to break. Do not, let me say this, for those of you who do not believe that censorship of that nature is okay. For those of you who do not believe that history, no matter how good or bad it is, should be repressed, right? For those who do not believe that our elected officials should act in such a way that is totally insensitive to a, 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 a nominal uh, or I should say I wouldn't say major but a significant part of the population right because nominal will say there's not that much major will say that we're way bigger than what we are and just the reality for black people, so you understand, especially those of us in the South who really never really got out or always lived in urban areas, black folks are not the majority population in the United States, not even close, right? We're not even the majority minority population anymore, right? The Latino population in America, the Hispanic population, however you want to refer to them, is the majority minority population. And they are the largest minority voting bloc in the 2020 election, right? They make up close to 16% of the population. We make up 13 at best, right? And yet we've had an African-American president and there has not been a Latino president. Why is that? because African-Americans have asserted themselves in a way where even though we're small in number, as far as the total 330 million people in the United States, we have positioned ourselves politically 
in these important areas of the country, the urban areas, and in an important region of the country, the South, where we have amassed some political power and very, very small economic power. Now, people dispute about our buying power and all that, 1.2 trillion or whatever the case may be, right? People dispute all that, where they're trying to dispute it, they're trying to downplay it. Either way it goes, to go from being 20 slaves in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619 to 13% of the population now with members of that community in the United States Congress, with members, one member of that community actually being the president of the United States, with some members have been governors, a lot of members have been members of the legislature in these respective states. That's significant. And for people like Tom Cotton to try to downplay where we came from or deny people the access to understand where we truly came from diminishes all of the achievements that we have made at this point. And that is so disrespectful of a man who represents a state, which is one of the states that have a significant percentage of black population higher than the national average or the national number. Right. It's very disrespectful. I don't think anybody's really came to him like that. I just people just say, well, they're Republicans and they're racist and blah, blah. Let's let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's not a racist, but he's insensitive as hell. And let's come at him that way and say, look, if you don't tell the truth about what really happened during that period of time, if you are not willing to let children in your state and other states throughout this country really understand what went down during that period from 1619 to 1865, then you really, really diminish the contributions and the struggles and the achievements that African-Americans have have gained since that time. It's, 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 It's borderline insulting. And I say borderline because I, well, I don't know if anybody's approaching that way because I don't know his inner circle of friends, right? And I assume being somebody who has lived most of his adult life in the South, that even as a Republican, he's got black friends that he talks to. Even some conservative black folks that have probably came to him and said exactly what I just said right there. Now, the national media and the national spotlight is Tom Cotton's a racist. Let's throw that out. Let's, let's give him the benefit of that and say, and say he's not a racist. But just remind him, as I hope that his friends have said to him, that what you did and what you said was insensitive as hell, and you need to fix that. Now, you put that bill out there in the, in the atmosphere You threw it on the wall, it didn't stick. Don't do that again. 
you can have a conservative viewpoint and not be perceived as racist. You can have a conservative viewpoint and not be totally perceived as insensitive, right? Because there's going to be an argument about that. But there will be some people when they think logically and look at a conservative viewpoint in particular, as you can say, but no, they're not being insensitive. They're being actually kind of practical. The question is, do we want to be practical or do we want to push it? Right? But I implore Senator Cotton to stop that because the reason why we had this conflict in Stone Mountain recently is because while I say it's insensitive, there's some people that are like, yeah, Tom Cotton's right. That's, that's the, he's the man. And we got to stop pandering to that because you have a right to your opinion, but your opinion is not right. And what Tom Cotton needs to understand, if he hasn't figured it out yet, is that politics is all about perception. And that's a big problem the Republican Party seems to not to have grasped and seems to, in a lot of our senses, don't care about. It's that perception of just being totally insensitive and totally out there to the point where many people think it's deliberate and it's just racist, right? And on that note, we'll come back on the other side. And we're back. So, if you remember at the beginning, because I know I threw a lot out there, a lot longer than normal, it's because I haven't talked in a long time. But I mentioned something about dictatorships, right? And so to tie that in with what I just talked about, And, and concluded with the fact about the insensitivity and even the perception of racism, right? When you limit free thought, when you limit free will of people, that's one of the tools, that is one of the steps toward totalitarianism or dictatorship, right? Another tool is to dismantle, destroy, take over the press, the media. Because many people look at the four pillars of democracy. Even Thomas Jefferson did it in a romantic way. He said there's four states of government. There's the executive, there's the legislative, there's the judicial, and then there's the press. Or as we refer to it now, the media. Right. Those are the four pillars of democracy. Those are the four pillars of 
four estates of government, right? And so a dictatorship eliminates the media first. Why? Why would you destroy the media first? Well, you destroy the media first so that the public is not informed about what you're really actually doing, which also contributes to limiting their free thought and their free will, right? Because if there's no place for the citizens to express themselves at all, then they end up being subjugated, right? And so this president, and, and, and really the subjugation has already started within his own political party. And people can debate that if you want to, but it's like, had I, I wanted, the easy say is Barack Obama because he was the previous guy and he's black and we can make it a racial thing. If Bill Clinton, well, that's kind of easy too because he was he was what we call PWT, which is not a politically correct term, but that's basically what it was. And he rose from that to become president of the United States. Went to Georgetown, Yale, all that stuff. Overcame incredible odds to make the American dream a reality that anybody could be president of the United States, any citizen, right? If he, if he, if despite all the stuff he did or did not do as president, good or bad, his legacy is that in this modern 20th, 21st century era, he overcame classism, economic disparity, and other odds to ascend to be the President of the United States. So, but let's not even use him. How about Jimmy Carter? If Jimmy Carter did half of the stuff that Donald Trump is doing, the Republicans would be going crazy, apeshit crazy. No question. I mean, President Carter had his own challenges, you know, the energy coming off an energy crisis, high inflation, instability in the in a Middle East region where our oil was dependent. Amongst other things. And he didn't have a good relationship with Congress then because he came in as a governor. And as the governor, he, you know, tried to exact his will on the legislature and, and he felt he could exact his will with the U.S. Congress and that wasn't happening. As a matter of fact, he probably got more pushback from the U.S. Congress than he did in the Georgia State Legislature, and he only had one term. And him being a former legislator, he should have known. But anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. Anyway, if Jimmy Carter 
and everybody knows his demeanor and all this other stuff. Jimmy Carter even turned halfway like Donald Trump during his administration. People would have gone crazy, especially the Republicans. Ronald Reagan might have been too moderate for them as an as a as a challenger. They might have wanted somebody more. Rockefeller was totally out of the question, right? Nelson Rockefeller. It, totally out of the question. They would have had to go on to somebody <clears throat> like a future Pat Buchanan or something like that. If Jimmy Carter was exhibited any of the traits that Donald Trump had. Any of them, let alone all of them. But it is obvious that since Donald Trump is a member of the Republican Party, that the Republican Party has subjugated itself to accept what he is doing as normal. And, I, and I'm here to tell you, folks, regardless of what you think of my political views, if you're on the opposite side, what you think of my level of intelligence, whatever. Donald Trump is, is a terrible president. But he is an aspiring dictator. His whole motivation, his whole driving force is to be, now that he's in charge, is to stay in charge. When have you heard a United States president say, hey, president for life, that's a good thing. Franklin Roosevelt was elected multiple times, but he was elected in the Great Depression, and then we went to war. And then they passed a law saying, we won't do that ever again. Based on the example that George Washington set, he could have been president till he died, and he chose not to do it. And I guarantee you, if you read Roosevelt's biographies, he was reluctant to stay in charge that long, but he knew he had an obligation because the country wanted stability. And usually in a time of crisis, presidents benefit from that. They benefit from being in a time of crisis. And they get reelected, but they only serve one term. after that. So after they get reelected. So, I mean, that's, that's it. You serve two terms and you're gone. Now, Donald Trump is really, really trying to set it up where he never has to give this position up. That's why he's taking these steps. He has subjugated his party. He is trying to subjugate the media. In the meantime, he is taking other steps. And, and he is doing something. It's one thing to criticize your opponents. It's another thing to demonize them and dehumanize them. Right? And that's what he is attempting to do with 
a historic moment that happened also in between the broadcasts with a black woman who actually is part Jamaican, part Asian. When we say Asian, we mean from the Indian subcontinent, right? who is now the vice presidential pick on the Democratic ticket, which is headed by Joe Biden. And that's Senator Kamala Harris from the aforementioned state that was acquired in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, California. Right? So, and Harris was a rival and if you remember, um, we talked about that right at the very beginning of the start of this whole podcast about her significance and how bad it was that she dropped out and all that stuff. But she's in now again. And she ran for president. She was one of the multiple Democrats that ran for president. And now her and Biden are survivors. Biden picking her to be his running mate, to be the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side. So that means there will be an epic debate between, and it looks like it's going to be on Zoom. <laughs> it may be on national TV, I'm sure, but between her and Mike Pence and people, those of us who are political junkies are really waiting for that moment. We think that's going to be epic television. Um, because really to be honest if you really are watching how this thing is shaping out Pence and Harris will probably be the battle in 2024 for President of the United States I'll let y'all know that. So, we, we have a president who is uh, seeking to do everything possible, right? And he's making money the whole time that he's, he's making money off of the presidency. He's getting his ambassadors to reach out to the countries that they're being emissaries in and trying to convince them to figure out ways that Donald Trump can make money while he's president. You ask the ambassador to the United Kingdom to get with people to see if you could have the British Open at your golf course? Really? Foreign dignitaries are still staying at the Trump Hotel, which used to be the old post office on Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Ah. Uh, how did GSA sold that to them? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> to continue to see 
all these different machinations. And now it's even gotten to the point. It's even gotten to the point where the President of the United States in the middle of an epidemic, a pandemic even, a plague if you will, in which those of us who care about the humanity, care about the society, are encouraging everybody, hey, how about you wear a mask while you're out in public to protect you from me, right? Or me from you. How about we do that? No, we've got we've got to have sports, and we've got to have uh, uh, schools open, and we've got to we've got to have businesses open. Everything has the American economy has to push through this pandemic to the point where we have more cases than any other country on the planet. To the point where we have more deaths than any other country on the planet. And this president is saying, push on. That's a dictator. Because reluctantly, whether you're a professional athlete or you own a cupcake shop, you're open for business. Because the will of the, I mean, we've got people protesting to send their kids to school in the middle of a pandemic. We have people protesting against ordinances that say or laws that say mandates that you have to wear a mask. People are refusing to shop at places if they tell them that they have to wear a mask. And that's the impact of dictatorial leadership. That's how it starts. When you're imposing, you have such a dynamic personality, and there's no doubt that our president has a dynamic personality. He attracts attention. He attracted attention before he got elected. That's how he got elected. There's no doubt of the, the, the cult of personality that has developed around him, that he is manipulating that. He is using that to his personal advantage. Because if I force people, and here's the other dynamic about that that I really want to get into before I say this comment. So much so that he's, he's, he's shutting down the post office. And he basically admitted to the world that he's shutting down the post office or diminishing the capabilities of the post office because he doesn't want people to mail in their votes. Because somehow he feels that mail-in voters will vote against him and the Republican Party. So you have members of the Republican Party 
who are like, okay. Now, their constituents, which a lot of them are on Social Security, are like saying, yeah, so is this going to impact my check coming? If y'all take post office boxes and mailboxes. Y'all saw the, anybody in the internet saw those pictures of like mailboxes being collected and taken away? Who does that? Anyway, so, you know, it's one thing to not replace mailboxes when they were being stolen. It's a whole nother conversation. Black people, whole nother conversation another day. But when you, when you, the post office, are taking mailboxes away from communities, anyway, so you're the president of the United States and you're worried that people mailing in ballots, even though you do mail-in ballots because you vote absentee in Florida because you're living at the White House, anybody else, <coughs> excuse me, doing that, any other state doing that, well, that's going to lead to fraud and da 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 So I'm going to shut down the post office, basically. I'm going to defund the post office. I'm going to deny them monies that they need to, to, to make sure they have the personnel to process these ballots in time for November the 3rd to be counted. And you want a scenario like Wisconsin where the Supreme Court forced these people Texas too, by the way, but the Supreme Court forced these people to come out and vote when the pandemic was first hitting. So now the people responded and one of those judges that voted for them to go vote got voted out, which I thought was great. Right. So, but there, the 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 hope is, is that you know we've gotten around this voter ID thing. We didn't figure it out. You know, Mississippi actually kind of showed away because that Secretary of State said, "Yeah, we'll take any formal ID. Yeah, we'll you know if you got a college ID, yeah, the state issues that. We'll take that driver's license. Heck, you ain't got a driver's license. You ain't got that." Go to your local circuit clerk's office and get a pick, get an ID taken for free. If you register, as a matter of fact, if you register to vote, explain to them and they'll give you a card with your picture on it. So Mississippi did that, which is why they were not sued, unlike other states that did voter ID and sued, right? Because the Mississippi folks heard the black legislators who said, we are not going back to a poll tax. Do you understand that? You can have your way, but we ain't paying to vote. Ever again. They got that. Right? So, now in, in, in Mississippi, people can, can vote, and we got around that voter ID thing. So now the new thing is early voting and and being able to vote absentee or vote by mail. 
So we have a political party who has subjugated themselves to the will of a wannabe dictator to say, yeah, we're not going to support the post office to make sure that that mail-in ballots, those votes get in on time. Right? So they won't be counted. So now we have a new creative form using a natural disaster, a pandemic, a health disaster to be a tool for voter suppression. Because there are some people who's like, they got a mindset, well, I, I gotta go to Walmart. I gotta go to Kroger. I gotta go to Walgreens. I gotta go to CVS. I gotta go to these stores, right? I gotta go to these stores to get my stuff. Dollar Tree, Dollar General, Family Dollar, whatever. I gotta go to these stores, but I ain't gotta go vote in the middle of this pandemic. I gotta go to work. It sounds like you're making me have to go to school, but I ain't gotta vote, right? Now, if you allow me to mail it in, I'm good. But I ain't trying to stand in no line And playing on that mentality, that's voter suppression. So in saying that and using that example, let me say this to black people. Any other people want to take my advice, Asian, Pacific Islanders, Latinos, white folks, whatever. whatever. Black people that are within the sound of my voice, do whatever you have to do to count. Take the time to make a change. First Tuesday of November 2020, which is November the 3rd. Whether you mail it in, whether you do early voting, if your state allows you to do early voting, or whether you stand in line on November the 3rd, do it. Do it. My challenge to the black community is the numbers that you put up for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. And, and yeah, I was part of the 2008. So even me, when you, the numbers you put up for me, even, I want you to try to double those in 2020. I want to see black people. And look, Kanye West, bruh, I'm down with you as a rapper. You trying to be a deflection for Donald Trump? I'm not down with that. So black people, don't vote for Kanye West. Don't do it. I don't care how mad you are with Joe Biden. And you shouldn't be mad at Joe Biden at this particular point. Right? There's some things we need to talk about. But with Kamala Harris on the ticket now, You shouldn't be mad at Joe Biden. You can be, but you shouldn't be. 
should be more mad at the guy that Joe Biden is running against. Enough so that by any means necessary, physically showing up on election day, showing up for early voting locations or mailing it in as soon as your ballot is in your hand. You need to vote. Now, let me be fair. If you want to vote for Kanye West, if you want to vote for Donald Trump, if you want to vote for Joe Biden, the only way you can fulfill that is that you got to vote. I don't see the majority of black people voting for Donald Trump or Kanye West, but you could you could prove me wrong on that. But the only way you can prove me wrong is that you vote. Donald Trump won Georgia by 211,000 votes. Over double that number of black people didn't vote at all. So, if 538,000 black people who didn't vote voted in that election, Hillary Clinton would have won Georgia and those electoral votes. Hmm. Of which there are 16 of those. Hmm. Just saying. Black people, y'all need to vote. Make some time to make a change. You gotta vote. You have to vote. This whole thing we were talking about in the first half about the 1619 Project and how far we've come. A lot of that has dealt with presidential elections and electoral colleges. And I know there's a debate about the electoral college, right? And I'm in agreement of that debate because the purpose that it was serving at the time no longer is valid, right? We have a population that if you do the right thing in kindergarten through 12th grade and educating the people about children, about the importance of the process, then they will be informed voters as they move on through their lives. But civics is vital in education. Another conversation for another day. So, black people, y'all gotta vote. Period. No excuses. I don't care if you're drunk. I don't care if you ain't got no car. I don't care what, you got to vote. You have to vote. Don't worry about that electoral college stuff. Don't do it. If you vote, then the person you want to win may win. And if they win the votes in the state you live in, they'll win the electoral votes. So vote. Nobody can get electoral college vote until people know how they voted in that state. 
as screwed up as a system as you may think it is, if you want your candidate to win the state, you have to vote. You can't dismiss it and just say, ah. Which gets me back to my point about dictators. Because if you lose the will to exercise your right to vote, to control the democracy that you live in, you will lose the democracy that you live in. If this man has not shown you, then nothing will show you. This man is in the presidency right now. As dictatorial as he attempts to be in a democratic society, in a technically democratic republic nation state, His attempts to sway this as a dictator, and the best way he can do it is to divide the nation. The party in which he represents, a president from that party said, a nation divided cannot stand. And he quoted that from the Bible. Same political party. And his nation was really, really divided. They were shooting at each other. And we survived that. He barely did not, but but he didn't. He didn't get to see the nation united. He didn't get that privilege. Or as united as it could be at the time, right? We weren't shooting at each other anymore. But now you have a president who is seeking, who is blatantly trying to divide the nation for his own political benefit, for his own dictatorial purposes. You have to vote. If you want the dictatorship, you have to vote. If you don't want the dictatorship, you have to vote. I am banking on the majority of people that are listening to this podcast or who will eventually listen to this podcast will make a decision on November 3rd, 2020 that they do not want a dictatorship. They don't want anything symbolizing that. They do not want this show to go on anymore. They want to cancel this program, this reality show, and move forward with a democracy that looks like the country America has become in the 21st century. How diverse this country is. Now, we're not as wealthy There are some individuals that are pretty pretty wealthy, but the country as a whole is not, which is part of the reason why we have the division. There are too many have-nots, and when the have-nots look at other have-nots as the scapegoats of why they don't have, then you have a problem. History, sociology has dictated that, right? Economics. 
So you, 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 you need to get away from that. If you don't get away from that, then that makes a dictatorship more likely. If not this guy, somebody even stronger than him because the foundation of the democracy has been weakened. So, right? And people might say, Fleming, that's a pretty harsh assessment. That's a pretty, that's a pretty strong statement to make. And my response is, let's be clear. If your eyes are not open to what's happening, that's on you. Because people smarter than me have basically said the same thing. People who are more grounded in the history of this nation than I am have said the same thing. People who have traveled the globe and studied other political systems throughout this, this world have said the same thing. This man is trying to be a dictator. And if we act like we don't care about it, if we act like, oh, we'll get through it and be nonchalant about it, you've heard from me and other politicians throughout history, throughout time, that this election is important, that every election is important. With the technology we have now, with the access to information that we have now, with our base understanding of how society is supposed to operate, which is more enhanced than, say, our ancestors 75 years ago. Right? the ancestors that actually fought the last totalitarianism stronghold in the world. The last two. All of us understanding all that. We know what we're seeing. If you feel hopeless, don't. If you feel helpless, don't. Because all you have to do is find a way to vote. That's the only thing I'm asking people to do. I'm not asking people to take to the streets. I'm not asking people to run for office. I'm not asking people to uh, storm the halls of government. All I want you to do is either mail in your ballot, show up at an early voting location if you have one, or show up on November the 3rd between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. in your respective time zone. That's all I'm asking you to do. 
If you do that, then you will have made the determination of how you want America to be from this point forward. You will determine whether you wanted a dictatorship or not. And I'm banking on the fact that if you show up, we will not be a dictatorship. I'm counting on that. I believe that. So, what we talked about, that we cannot allow people in public positions to dictate our free thought and our free will. We cannot allow people to diminish our worth. Even if they're in opposition to us can't allow them to diminish our worth. Even if they're on the same side as us, supposedly, we can't allow them to diminish our worth. And we have to fight for this democracy that we have. History has proven that it has not been perfect and that we are still dealing with the residuals of the original sin that America has committed but it has gotten better each and every day that we have fought to make it better. And on the days that we have not fought for it, we have regressed. Freedom isn't free and it can't protect itself. There's a cost and there's an effort that has to be made. each and every day. So, if you hear this, I want I want you to be very crystal clear about what I'm saying. You have the power to move this country forward. You have the power to hold people in positions of power accountable because the power they have derives from you. Period. And each one of you has a destiny to be as great as you can be but if you allow other people and other things to take that away from you, then you'll never be as great as you can be because you're allowing something else to determine how great you are. Whether that's as an individual citizen or whether that's as a nation collectively. And I think the biggest challenge that an American president or anybody, any leader has is to get people to buy into the fact that America is not great. 
but Americans are. Because if Americans aren't great, then the country as a whole can never be perceived as great. But the basic thing is that you have to buy into it. Don't let people tell you what your history should be. Don't let people insult folks that look like you that are serving in positions or have been given a distinction to serve in a position. Don't let them insult them. Don't let them degrade the community that you live in. Don't let people in your community degrade the community that you live in. You have so much control and it starts within the sphere of your circle. And it starts within yourself. So just do that one thing I ask of you to do. And I will continue to talk about different issues and all that stuff. So I ask you to listen. I'm, I'm politely asking you to listen. But I'm imploring you that if you do nothing else, vote November the 3rd. Vote November the 3rd. Vote November the 3rd. Make the time to make a change. Make the time to make a difference. Until next time.